The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 18th chapter. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The time for my departure has come. Paul tells his people, beginning with Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul recognizes, having already had his first trial under the emperor Nero, that the time for his departure has come. He won't get out of this prison alive. And so he imparts some final words to Timothy, one of his sons in the faith, words which have continued to encourage the church over centuries, who find themselves stuck in the lion's mouth. Paul recognizes the time for his departure has come. He he knows that Timothy is well aware of how many close calls and rescues and answered prayers have sent Paul from out of the lion's mouth back into the mission field. Paul's been beaten and persecuted and imprisoned and stoned and ran out of town so many times that his friends like Timothy don't really believe this time he's actually going to depart. Paul knows what's actually going on now. And so he tells his friend, He tells his son, my departure has come. This is the time. I've fought the good fight. I've ran and finished the race. And the crown will be mine. And not just mine, but for all who long for Jesus to show up. We usually hear this scripture at funerals and memorial services. I think this would be the only time in three years of Sunday readings that this scripture would cycle through. We usually hear this in the context of a funeral and we think about the race completed by our beloved deceased. We think about the righteous judge who will lay and has laid a crown of righteousness on their brow. And we speak openly about the loss of this person. And perhaps even in those occasions we think about our own mortality, our own limitation, our own time of departure. None of us really knowing how far off that may be. We think about what fighting the good fight looks like, what it means to complete the race. 
Paul invites us to speak openly about our griefs and our losses, about death, without euphemism. He invites us to speak about, of course, our own deaths, but also the losses we incur through death. Whether it's the death of a friend like Tina after years of cancer, whether it's the sudden death of a friend like Audrey, who was perfectly healthy the day before, whether it's the death of my wife's cousin's two-year-old daughter, Lucy, that we've prayed for for two years, who died on Friday. Paul invites us to think about all of our departures and of those whom we love, and to think about those deaths that don't take place when an individual stops breathing, but when a community or a family or a country or a culture or a congregation is no longer recognizable to you to talk about mortality in all of its forms. And Paul doesn't speak euphemistically, but he does give us a metaphor, a race being poured out like a libation, which doesn't just mean you're sweating at the end of the race, but a libation has to do with temple practices, has to do with pouring out a sacrifice. That the race isn't just run for your own benefit and glory to wear a crown of laurels, but it's a race to be poured out for the sake of others. And this crown, he says, isn't his, and it's not for the apostles. The crown is for anyone longing for Christ's appearing. And then he goes in to talk about how at his first defense, nobody came to his support, but everyone deserted him. And he prays that it may not be counted against them. He says, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so the message might be fully proclaimed. Paul says he was rescued from the lion's mouth and that the Lord will rescue him from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And Paul says, amen. What a remarkable juxtaposition. In one breath, he has the language of complaint. And in the next breath, the prayer of gratitude and praise and trust in Jesus who will lead him in the strength of the Lord. Now, in a moment, we're going to consider a parable Jesus shares about two men coming to a temple to pray. But before that, our psalm just gives us a beautiful picture of this temple. Psalm 84, which it cuts off after verse 7, but towards the end of the cutoff part, there's that great line about, better is one day in your courts or in your house, Lord, than a thousand days elsewhere. And this beautiful picture of the temple which becomes a dwelling place, that the pilgrims come to Zion and ascend God's holy hill, Zion, and come into the temple courts praising the Lord, that they move from place to place, from strength to strength, to approach God in his home. This dwelling place is called lovely. The psalmist's own soul is fainting to see God's house. His heart and his flesh together are singing with joy. And this beautiful little picture in verse 3 that says, Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord. Now, he's not being metaphorical there. God's holy temple had bird poop all over the place. It had sparrow nests. It had swallow nests. And you couldn't find a silent place to pray if you were a priest in the temple of God because the chirping just continues on and on. But the temple's design, its decor, its decoration 
was to picture Eden, the restoration of the Garden of Eden in a temple. So there's the tree of life. There's all kinds of images. And of course, there's birds chirping. The swallows and sparrows make their home in God's house in the temple. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, says the psalmist. This is the house of the Lord that Jesus now sets his parable. With birds chirping and you have to watch your step and there's all kinds of hustle and bustle as the priests are doing their work and the men and women and children of Israel are seeking the Lord through praise and petition. And this parable kicks off right on the heels of last Sunday. Last Sunday, Jesus shared about that widow who pesters the the judge and finally wears him down to answer her prayer. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes upon the earth? The very next thing he does is share this parable, which begins to answer his own question. Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes to the earth? Well, here's an example of what it looks like for faith to live on earth. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like all those people. Not just those people who didn't come on a Sabbath morning to pray in God's house, but even like this guy across the way who did come to church, but I know what he's like the rest of the week. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him as well. Doesn't take that much work to show up to church for an hour or two, but at least I'm not like this guy the rest of the week. I fast, I give a tenth of my income, I go beyond the law. And then the second man, this tax collector, who doesn't notice the public or doesn't notice the prayer of the Pharisee because his head is down, with eyes downcast, with his hand beating his breast, he prays, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. And Jesus says it plain as day. Two men went to church. One man went home in a right relationship with God. And he guesses who it is. And just in case people in his audience are slow, Jesus says, the second one goes home right with the Lord. What's fascinating about the the tax collector's prayer is that he doesn't confess that he is just a sinner, although that's what it says in our English. It actually in Greek says, have mercy on me, the sinner. So this man knows, you want a dictionary definition of sin, you look in my heart. And he doesn't just use the common everyday word for mercy, a word that we know from that phrase, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. He doesn't use that word for mercy. He uses a much more specific word that is used by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement who goes into the temple and lays the sacrifice on the altar and prays that the Lord would have that special kind of mercy. So what is this tax collector doing? Beating his breast, eyes downcast, not worried about anyone but himself, naming himself the sinner and acting like he himself is the high priest now praying on behalf of all the people. If he is the sinner, if God then grants the sinner God's mercy, well then there is no more sin to forgive. It's all been taken care of. You begin to see once again when Jesus gives a parable, 
We think the parable's about us. And Jesus says the parable's about him and what he's come to do, which is not to save us by being a clean and holy example that we can imitate because now we're convinced of how much God loves us because look at Jesus. No. Jesus has come to deliver us from sin, death, hell, and the devil and to deliver us from ourselves, to be merciful on us, a sinner, because he, Jesus, from the cross, confessed that he is the sinner. And he is declared by the author of Hebrews to be the great high priest who has interceded on our behalf, not once and for all, I mean, not, not every year like the priest in Jerusalem, but once and for all for the sins of the world. This is Jesus. And of course, he hung out with tax collectors long enough to be associated as just that. He's a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's a friend of prostitutes. This is what it looks like when faith is found on earth. It looks like a confession of sin. It looks like a high priestly prayer of intercession for the sake of others. It looks like Jesus, crucified and raised for you and me. So this miserable tax collector in the parable, he goes home in the mercy of God. He's justified. He's made right, longing for a savior, for rescue from his own remorse. He, like Paul, will be given that crown of righteousness. His good works will not be crowned, and his sins will not be excused, but Jesus will simply give him his own crown of righteousness. The power of this parable is not if it's true once, but if it's true repeatedly. What if nothing changed the next Sabbath day? What if following this Sabbath prayer, the Pharisee, having given his religious resume, goes home and continues to be an upstanding citizen a faithful family man, and makes a difference in the world. And goes back the next Sabbath day and says, I've done it again. I'm building a good track record here, Lord. And what if the tax collector just can't shake his shaking down of debtors? And then what if the tax collector drags himself back to the temple in the exact same rock-bottom spot he was before, prays for the same mercy he received the week before. And what if Jesus, week after week, continues to declare righteous the one who knows what a schmuck he is? The parable is powerful and probably scandalous, not if it's true once upon a time, but if it's true every time. Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes on earth? If so, it won't be found in religious resumes disguised as prayers in church. It won't be found on street corners as people stand up for justice. You certainly don't need Jesus to do either of those things. And Jesus, in truth, may at times be a hindrance to those pursuits. No, rather, faith, justification, a right, restored relationship with God will not be found in our words or in our deeds. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes by the power of God's Holy Spirit 
through his word of mercy in Jesus, by his grace that he lavishes on every beaten breast and hung head. Faith will be found on earth because Jesus will find his flock. He will gather his lambs who listened for his voice rather than lift up their own. And the strength of the Lord Jesus has come, presently comes, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. From the strength of eternity to the strength of the resurrection, via the weakness of the cross and grave, we are held in Christ who died and rose for our sakes. Christ then moves us from our strength to his. From flocking to his temple to flaunt our lives to making a nest with the little sparrows in the house of the Lord where the broken winged find a home and a dwelling place to lay our young. And as with Paul in prison, the Lord will stand by us and give us strength so that the gospel might be fully proclaimed. The Lord will rescue us from the lion's mouth from every evil attack and save us for his heavenly kingdom. And so to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.